Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Well, we're all back to work. We worked Monday. We really did that. But we're all back to work on Tuesday for a shorter work week after the family day holiday. We hope you had a good three-day weekend if that's what you were able to uh, achieve. We've got a great show uh, coming up today on the pod. Stephanie Carvin, National Security Analyst, Carleton University. We have a great chat with her about the occupation of Ottawa, the subsequent reaction, how we struggle, both of us, I think, do, with some elements, maybe a lot of the elements, of the Emergency Measures Act uh, pushed through by the Liberal government in the House of Commons on Monday night. So we get there uh, with her on that. And much, much more. It's very Ottawa-centric. Uh, that's for sure on this particular podcast. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks very much for checking out Toronto Today, and it begins now. So let me start here. I mean, so much has happened. The Olympics wrapped up, and they're long gone. We sort of shrug our shoulders, and uh, our focus has been on the television show Ottawa. That's been a TV show. It's not not unlike watching Desert Storm when I was in university. Your roommates would be like, ah, the the Leafs game is kind of boring. Not much is happening. Ah, that March Madness basketball game is a bit of a blowout. Let's watch Desert Storm. And you would do that, and you would turn on CNN, and you would see, you know, the Scud Stud, Arthur Kent, and you'd see all the coverage of it. And the show Ottawa was a little like that on the weekend. You would kind of go back and forth and be like, eh, it's time for another hour of Ottawa. I can take about 20 minutes. I'm going to watch the show Ottawa uh, today around, you know, 1 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And we were doing that. Whether the show's over or not is still to be debated somewhat. There were emergency measures uh, put together by the prime minister, if you recall, about eight days ago on Monday afternoon. I remember touching down at the airport because Super Bowl weekend feels like it was seven weekends ago. Wasn't that seven? Snoop Dogg thinks it was seven weekends ago, but that's Snoop Dogg. Okay? That's, he, do, he does not remember that all that happened eight days ago. That's just where he's at. But it did. And uh, the prime minister put emergency measures down eight days ago and decided uh, we need extraordinary powers. We got to do something almost unprecedented. Had, hadn't been done in 50 plus years. Nobody even thought about it. And uh, I, I make this point all the time. I'm way too young for the FLQ. Was born uh, a few years after that. But nonetheless, there was there's been very little civil unrest in our country. For a half century, we have to we have to say that and lay that out there before I get some of what I'm going to get to today. Um, we certainly have had have flirtations with uh, Quebec separating. It's hard to believe that, uh, and I've never lived in Quebec, but been there enough times. It's hard to believe that we woke up on mornings. I think in 1980, and I remember the one in 1995 very clearly, where you'd wake up and go, "Do they really not like us that much? Do they really want to vote?" you know, yes to leaving or yes to staying and no to leaving. Who remembers what it was like? And it was actually close. It was very tight and contentious leading up to those pro processes in with Rennie Levesque, obviously, and then later on with uh, with Jacques Parizeau and Lucien Bouchard and characters like that. So when all that happens in the mid-90s, we think, okay, well, we're going to settle this down and we're always going to have our, our quarrels and our uh, disputes, but we can move the ball forward here. And uh, we've run into a, a real roadblock. I can't even believe it got to this. We're almost four weeks removed from there's going to be a trucker convoy and there's going to be a protest. And that protest is going to you know, make its way. They're making their way from out west. They're going to get to Windsor at a certain point in time. They're going to get to go, come through the London area. They were in Toronto four weeks ago on Thursday. And you'd remember that 
Uh, we talked about about it and people wrote about it. And it was Wednesday night that Prime Minister Trudeau gave his now infamous small fringe minority comments. It might be it might be the most tone deaf thing a leader of our country has ever said. And leaders of our countries uh, of our country, they've said a lot over uh, <laughs> over almost uh, 200 years at the minimum, you know, about 155 or so. Uh, it's, it's the most tone deaf thing I can recall. Okay. And we've had a lot of years of Trudeau and Mulroney and Gretchen and Stephen Harper. And I, I just, it was such a classic calculated mistake and a, and a glib, you know, hand in the air dismissal about how Canadians were feeling. I've said it 40 times. There needed to be clear lines of demarcation. The organizers, bad people bad principles, racist, this and that, the other thing. I'll call them out for that. But he also needed to say, I understand how some Canadians are feeling. And I get you. I, I, I want to have some of those conversations. He doesn't have to go out and meet with the organizers of the convoy. But for, to not make himself, forget making himself available, just to dismiss it outright and label everybody involved saying, I want to protest this, all right? There are so many vaccinated people in Ottawa who just don't believe in the mandates, who certainly don't believe that truckers should have been suggested to uh, uh, subjected to the mandates at a certain point in time. I want to get to this uh, and and no doubt there's going to be interest in why what happened happened last night. It was the confidence vote that wasn't a confidence vote. There were certainly liberal MPs, I believe, I believe that would have not voted for this had they not been well aware that it triggers an election if it gets overturned. Now, 12 to 13, 12, 13 liberals would have had to vote the other way based on the final numbers. And I just don't think there were 13 that had the stomach, but there might have been six or seven. We've already seen uh, the MPs that have voted uh, rather spoken out against, I, I guess, the tone and the concept of Joel, Light, Joel Lightbound being one, of course, a member of the House of Commons coming from Quebec. Would Nate Erskine-Smith have voted against it? I'm going to get to him in a second. This was Michael Chong, uh, Conservative Party of Canada MP, speaking on the Emergencies Act last night. I give it about a minute here, but I think it's really relevant, and he puts it all in a nicely wrapped package as to how I think most Canadians felt about this process. These emergency powers may not, in fact, pass the Oaks test with respect to the proportionality or the requirement that they minimally impair rights and freedoms. The government has not met the requirement of the Act that the situation cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. And therefore, Madam Speaker, I cannot support the motion. And I would add, if the House supports the motion, it might be giving government powers it like likely does not lawfully have under the act and while i cannot support the motion it's clear that the blockades in ottawa and at the border were unlawful illegal and in many aspects criminal it's also clear that the existing laws of canada did and could have effectively dealt with the situation a lack of timeliness in law enforcement and a lack of federal-provincial cooperation in other operational deficiencies cannot be dealt with under the Emergencies Act, nor under the emergency doctrine of peace, order, and good government. The failure to uphold the rule of law is the issue here, 
not a lack of law to effectively deal with the situation. That is it. That's exactly it right there. There wasn't a utilization of the proper laws and the enforcement of them when they had the chance to do that. Is that is that a failure at a municipal level? Sure. Provincial, bringing OPP in? Yeah, absolutely. And of course, at the federal level. Now, I think most of the protesters are there because of how they feel uh, federally. But this showed people are worried about some kind of, oh, Canadian uh, government being totalitarian. No, if anything, they showed they're pretty weak. Okay, they couldn't enforce their will on its on their own security. They couldn't make their own law enforcement enforce laws. Think about that sentence and what I just said. They couldn't make their law enforcement officers enforce laws. So it's pretty hard to make the case that there's some harsh ideological bent uh, that the Trudeau government is on here. Okay, Uh, if anything, they were very much a disrespected, uh, you know, how would I put it? A disrespected body at the end of this particular day. Jugmeet Singh and the NDP went along. The bloc were against. They went along with the Emergency Measures Act. But Singh made it clear yesterday, and we'll see if this can hold up under scrutiny. And he told us the same thing last Thursday on the show. Jugmeet Singh, the NDP leader, said this is they don't want an election, so they're going along to get along. We also would never allow our country to be in the midst of a crisis plunged into an election. So that would never be something we would allow to happen. We know that Canadians need our help. We need to get through this pandemic and we need to get through this crisis. Now, played you conservative uh, party uh, of Canada MP. That's the NDP leader. Here's something from the backbenches of the Liberal Party of Canada. And this is Nate Erskine Smith, the Beaches East York MP. I'm going to read you some of his speech. Of course, people are tired of pandemic rules. I was furious when Ontario schools closed to in-person learning in January yet again. Protest is to be expected, and everyone has the right to peaceful protest. But that right does not extend to blocking highways and bridges. It doesn't extend to the intimidation, harassment, threats, and the endless and deafening noise we've seen in our national capital. These are crimes, and they are quite obviously crimes. We can't paint every protester with the same brush. But we can judge people by the company they keep. And we should never platform the language of treason, medical experiments, the Nuremberg Code, or support for white supremacy, all of which we saw on our democracy's doorstep. My genuine plea to those listening, to those who dislike the prime minister, who dislike public health measures, to those who sit in the conservative caucus especially, just remember that democracies are fragile. Encouraging lawlessness and emboldening anti-government, anti-democratic voices does a disservice to our country no matter how much hatred you have for your opponents. If you don't stop fanning the flames, I'm not certain we'll be able to put out the fire. And reflecting on my own side of the house, if we are fearful of polarization, then we ought to be especially careful not to contribute to it ourselves. Last paragraph, we are each sent here to represent our constituents, of course, but our obligations extend beyond any parochial interest. We are the trustees of our democracy, the rule of law, civil liberties, and peace, order, and good government. And that's an incredibly well-written, well-said speech from Nate Erskine-Smith. That guy's a leader, whether he is in the the House of Commons or not. And to call out your own, to be honest, calling out the Prime Minister, because not many others have polarized quite like he has these last three or four weeks. A lot on this. Let me shift to this really quick. Uh, You may have seen this, you may not have. But the CDC in the United States, and I'm going to talk to Dr. Suman Chakrabarty at the bottom of the hour. 
but they're under criticism right now. Um, and they've been under <laughs> criticism for some time about COVID, but they've collected a wide variety of COVID related data, but they've only published a tiny fraction. Why is that? Well, a New York Times report on Monday noted that this has been a problem. The CDC has these vast swaths of data. And we've always said during the COVID era we've lived through for 23 and a half months now, give us more information, not less. Tell us more, not less. Tell us about whether people are in hospital because of COVID or with COVID. Tell us who has multiple comorbidities. Uh, that's not ableism. That's not that's giving you a proper sense of demographics. Who's more at risk? You can tell us we're all in this together and to wash our hands and to keep our distance. But really, at the end of the day, that's not serving the greater good of the population here. It just sounds nice. And we can't just be sounding nice. We need practical considerations here. So um, there's a ton of data that just got pushed out. And for example, hospitalizations for COVID-19. They break down that data by age, race, vaccination status. A lot of that data had not been made public. What about how effective boosters are in adults under 65? Oh, well, that just got put out two weeks ago. And they left all the data out for 18 to 49-year-olds. If you're 18 to 49, you'd like to know how effective a booster is for you. It might help you decide to get it. And that might be something that makes you safer. A lot of times the CDC's got an excuse for holding back the data. And they worry that the information could be misinterpreted. But my point would be, we've got a lot of misinterpretation, period, happening right now. And more data could prevent that. Okay? There's a lot of people who still are of the mind, well, they lied to us. They said that there wouldn't be breakthrough infections. No, they didn't They never say that. But they also didn't point data out clarifying where and when they happened. Uh, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty joined me yesterday. I started our conversation last evening um, by talking to Dr. Chakrabarty about how well we've done the last six weeks, hospitalizations dropping, ICU beds uh, in, in a great, great place, and how we're headed towards the spring with a virus of an endemic nature. Here's our conversation. Right now, there's a singular focus on COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2, by people that, you know, they, uh, they haven't been familiar with respiratory viruses before. But the point is that when people aren't paying attention, respiratory viruses are there. They're, they're there constantly. We get a, uh, you know, a flu B bump around uh, uh, February, March, you know, a, a bit of a uh, much less of a bump. We see this every year. And the point that I'm trying to say is that uh, we can live with this virus just like we live with other uh, respiratory viruses. And even when we're not paying attention to it in the news, in the, uh, you know, on, on Twitter, on Facebook constantly, there's people whose life work is to look at this and deal with this. And it will continue just like it did before the pandemic. And that's why I'm saying is that even though uh, it's time for us, I think, to pivot our perspective, that's not to say that the virus is gone because it isn't, but we will continue to be working with it long after people are no longer paying attention to it. Well, I think the, the, the pivot seems to be for, for people, whether it's you, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, other ID specialists or whether it's, you know, average people, average Joes like me on the radio is the idea of the pivot involves a ton of um, protection for those who are most vulnerable, a ton of planning um, to not just not just refurbish and restructure our healthcare system, but also to make sure that those that have, you know, a, a higher risk, um, you know, I, I don't think we can yell it enough 
about older people getting boosted. I, th I think we've needed a more aggressive campaign. I think we've needed advertising uh, because I think when we open it up before Christmas, and you and I have talked about this a couple of times, people just, you know, they want to get their shot and maybe get that third shot to see relatives and whatnot. And then they just thought, okay, I, I didn't get in in time. And they've shrugged their shoulders and moved on. And we've got to, you know, recalibrate getting that third shot to those vulnerable people. And we haven't uh, two months away from Christmas. It's true, Greg, but one thing I'll also say, and this is another thing that, you know, we've been talking about since the beginning, but it wasn't as easy to kind of get that message across that remember when you get exposed to the virus, you have significant robust immunity. We just had a massive Omicron wave where it's estimated somewhere between 40 to 50% of Ontario's population was uh, exposed. And the reason I bring that up is all of a sudden, it's not as easy to make these broad brush uh, vaccine recommendations, including third doses, which by the way, I think should be prioritized for the individuals over the age of you know, around 60 or so, mm -hmm. uh, immune compromise, et cetera. But the thing is, you have all these people now who have been exposed to COVID and that acts like a booster. So I think that the big thing is that if you had COVID and you've had one or two shots, I think now that we're out of the emergency phase, you can take a step back and let's see what happens. We have time now to gather the evidence, see what's happening and see what's best for the population. But, you know, if you've uh, if you've had two shots and you haven't been exposed to COVID, you haven't been sick, then, yeah, if you're over the age of 60 or you have an immune compromising condition, it's it's important to get that third dose. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is our guest on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. What's been your observation of um, of schools being open now for about four and a half weeks? Um, teachers stepped up. They seemed that they obviously got new uh, and, and better masks. They asked for that. They got it. Um, if anything, I think it's fair to criticize the province for not getting it to them sooner. I think those are fair criticisms. But but a boosted teacher with an N95 mask um, seems pretty infallible. The numbers would tell us that anyway. After five weeks, schools have gone well. Is there any other way to look at it? No, I, I agree with you. And to be fair, I think even before this, schools were not really a uh, massive hotbed of transmission. So, for example, like the, the manufacturing sector in the Peel region, where you were seeing factory mm -hmm. worker after factory worker coming in extremely ill or a family member. Right, and not to say that, that transmission doesn't occur in schools, but it's it, it's a it's a magnitude magnitudes of difference. Um, I think that we have to remember another thing too is that like even without the booster, many of these teachers will be just fine because the majority of them are, uh, are relatively young and healthy. The point that I think is that we have to look at this as a major trade-off. Is that we want everybody to be safe, but the other thing is that for the kids, school interruption I think has much more risks than it does benefits including when you weigh it against COVID. And I think one of the big things that we've learned is going forward, kids need to be in school. And I think that uh, we've, we've done pretty good with that this year. And, you know, I, I have a four-year-old daughter who's right now in junior kindergarten and seeing her blossom, just being with uh, uh, the teachers uh, who have been teaching her, her friends, it's just been amazing to see. And we all, I think, dug out mentally, didn't we, after uh, the announcement on January 3rd? Um, that was hard. That was really hard. The weather started to turn. We'd all been through the holidays. We were all hopeful. We'd had a pretty good fall, all told, until Omicron hit us uh, right between the eyes. But that was that was a hard two and a half weeks explaining to kids and explaining um, to ourselves that, that this was happening again. I, I, I'm still mad. I'm, I'm still not sure it accomplished anything, to be perfectly fair in terms of changing the numbers. I agree with you. And I think that, by the way, this is a bigger uh, theme that we have to think about is that there's a lot of thought on the ground 
that we can change what this virus does. We can change the wave if we just lock down harder. And I think if you look at the evidence and what we've accrued in the last two years of going through this, what happened, you know, that expression, the virus going to virus, uh, you know, it comes through um, these waves uh, are baked in. The best thing that we can do is protect ourselves with vaccine. Uh, and, you know, I question now even a lot of the non-pharmaceutical stuff that we do uh, uh, with Omicron. Omicron has been the great equalizer. It's been just barreling through and in infecting people. It's infected people in populations that are restricted in populations that there's no lockdown. Masks, no masks. N95, no N95. So I think the big thing first to remember is that this virus is going to get to 50% of the world's population by the end of March. At some point, we're all going to have uh, uh, our exposure with this virus and many times in our life over the next 10 years. And this is the, the, the reality of respiratory viruses and was the case even before this pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I've been on this earth almost five decades and I've gone now two years without without being sick once and i've never done that i've never i've probably never gone eight months without having a day where it's so heavy that that you couldn't do your job or you need to be in bed all day uh, <laughs> it's been 700 plus days and i haven't had one of those days and it's i'm sure it's coming i'm sure it's coming and, and that's normal and the same thing with kids like you know i think that a lot of uh, uh my uh friends have said to me like look my, my kids haven't been sick in two years you know the masks are great I take a step back as an infectious disease doctor. Remember, like, I don't think that's a good thing. Kids need viral exposure to stimulate and strengthen their immune system. Uh, and, uh, you know, we saw um, RSV. It's a, it's a virus that can cause um, um, pretty severe illness in kids. We saw spikes of that in, in uh, places that had been masking for a long time. So what I'm trying to say is that, yeah, of course, we needed that at the time that we didn't know what was going on. But going forward, the mask is not the panacea that we think it is. And I think it's important for us to realize there are unintended consequences. I'll get back to you on masks. What about mandates? Uh, where we go with them? I was all for them in August and September. I think they created consumer confidence. I think they created employees being confident to go back to the workplace. Maybe we were on public transit. Maybe we travel. I, I, I don't know where we go with them. I, I think we have to have them in certain settings, certainly in long-term care and retirement homes and, and almost universally in healthcare. But but I don't know where we go with them for, you know, and 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 so many of them, Dr. Chakrabarty, we've talked about this. They're theatrical for me to wear them into the gym and then not wear them when I'm running, to wear them into a movie theater and take them off while I eat popcorn for an hour. There's a lot of lot of theater happening with some of these specific mandates. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for the vaccine mandate, first of all, for me, I agree with you. It made a lot of sense when we initially had the impression, uh, based on what we were seeing on the ground, that this thing was significantly reducing transmission. As time has gone on, listen, this vaccine is amazing. It's amazing at reducing your uh, risk greatly of severe disease. But for transmission, it's not so good, especially a couple of uh, several weeks out from your, your vaccine. And that's a big disappointment for us. But when you see that, now we have to think about policy. And now, you know, vaccine passports, um, uh, this doesn't make sense anymore scientifically. And for me, listen, I want everybody to get vaccinated. And at this point, you have to also remember, many unvaccinated people have been exposed to the virus and they have protection. So I don't agree with people that made the choice to not get vaccinated, but I cannot justify keeping them out of a public space just because I don't like that decision. And we have to remember that lots of people feel uncomfortable wanting to let unvaccinated people into, into a public space. You can't do that. And I think at this point, we have no scientific backing to keep this passport, that, that, that mandate. 
lifted. Uh, and, you know, mandates in general, uh, in, in um, uh, uh, other places like with mask mandates, I think the, the expiration date is, is long past. Look, if you want to wear a mask, nobody's stopping you. The one-way mask we've talked about, but mm-hmm. I don't think at this point in time when we have 90% of people, and by the way, the highest risk people, um, you know, older individuals over the age of 60 and immune compromised, it's more like 95 to 98%. And those people are now protected with vaccine. I think that if they want to wear a mask, if other people want to, and you feel comfortable, do it. You shouldn't be shamed. But a mandate at this point, I don't think it's necessary, and I think it should be lifted. I think our I think our time has changed. I don't think I, I've never claimed to speak for um, even you know the, the the majority of people, but I think I've had conversations with other people in my peer group who have had their three vaccines, and, and I think we think we don't really care if we're around unvaccinated people. We've got our protection. This is what this was meant to do. If it's a tense, uh, crowded area, perhaps we'll we'll carry a mask with us and we'll be able to put it on whenever we like. And and now that there's been more education about N95 masks versus surgical or cloth masks, you're even more enhanced. But I, I agree. I, I don't think we've got kind of that um, that feeling inside of, of dread that I could be somewhere indoors where a lot of unvaccinated people will be. I don't have that in me anyway, uh, it, anymore. If I had it eight months ago, I don't have it now. Yeah, I agree with you. And, you know, I think a lot of this now is like, it's, this is where the perspective shift comes in, where every decision in the last two years for so many of us, COVID was in the center of that decision. And I think that, you know, in 2018, when you went to a Leafs game, for me, you know, of course, Leafs and Habs, right? I'm <laughs> well, you get heckled, there's that, right? Exactly. Yes, well, I, got I got you. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, when you went to that stadium, you were being exposed to tons of respiratory viruses. You didn't think about it. That's exactly what I think we need to get back to, um, you know, in general. And I think the other big thing is, is that, you know, when you went to a friend's house, when you went, you didn't think about their vaccination status, right? And the thing is, that thing is something that becomes now a part of your, your medical history that you don't talk about. And I think that if you yourself are vaccinated, you're protected, right? And if you have a high risk condition, uh, even in that situation, I'll give you an example. My dad is um, 80 years old, and he has rheumatoid arthritis. He would, he said to me, listen, I don't care at this point if I'm at risk. I want to see my grandkids. I want to see my, my friends. And if there is a risk there, I'll take it. And that's the other thing is that, you know, letting people make their own decision and being empowered to do so is I think the thing that we need to really be stressing in, in, in the weeks and months going forward. It's going to take some time to make that uh, pivot, but I think uh, it's something that's going to be happening, I, I guess, starting now and March 1st and the middle of March as well. This time with Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. So excited to talk uh, to our next guest. Uh, and however we talk and wherever the conversation weaves its way to, it won't be long enough. And uh, if anything, uh, I think we'll uh, this would be better served in the afternoon over a uh, over a craft beer or something, because I think we both have opinions about the last several days. Clearly, the callers do. By the way, you can check out uh, her book, Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. Hello. That feels like that just happened. But she wrote this in advance of this. Uh, Stephanie Carvin is our guest on Toronto today. You're you're like a soothsayer or something uh, writing stand on guard, reassessing threats to Canada's national security. But you you don't have a crystal. You're not Whoopi Goldberg and ghost. You didn't see all, all, all this coming this weekend, did you? No, I, I mean, yes, yes, of course I did. No, <laughs> I mean, I will say I do think it is the culmination of trends that we have seen over a number of years. 
Um, we, we have a whole, co- you know, that's that's part of that craft beer conversation right there. I'll tell you that. But yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it's it. If I thought we'd be having this conversation at the end of February 2022, no, I, I would I, I would fail the Whoopi Goldberg test. I'll tell you that. When we, uh, you know, we've got a lot of people that um, are just absolutely fired up about what they saw over the weekend. But but I, I don't think there's any clear way to assess the weekend. It had a lot of evolution to it. People are saying, well, where's the national emergency? Well, back last Wednesday or Thursday, ask the people of Ottawa whether they felt there was an emergency going on after 21, 22 days. They did feel that way. Yeah. So if you read the government, I mean, and look, I understand how people feel torn about this or upset about this. And quite frankly, I'm I'm torn about this, too. Like, I wish I had the people keep saying this is necessary. And I'm like, I don't have a great answer for you. I got I have a lot of questions, so I'm not sure if this is going to be that satisfactory of an interview. But, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the government's rationale, right, and it's called a, a Section 58 justification because they have to justify why they why they invoke this emergency under the act um they they talk about a number of things they talk about the first thing is that there's um, a, a kind of political extremism um that's out there that is uh, growing and that's the important thing here in that justification they're saying there's a threat and that threat is actually increasing and what i think they're pointing to are you know you know i've had this conversation i think with you and with other mm-hmm. other reporters at the heart of this protest were not truckers, right? These, these were not truckers. These are people who had nothing to do with the trucking industry. These are people who have tried to organize convoys before around various different conspiracy theories. And But when they touched on the pandemic, everyone's so exhausted. Suddenly, there's a wellspring of support, and they're, and they're successful in, 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 how they, 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 in what they want to carry out, right? So there's that aspect of it. But the more concerning thing is now that there's this large movement with a lot of money and a lot of people, we did see extremist groups, like re- the kind of the more violent ones, jump on. Um, and so we've heard some talk, I don't know if you've talked about the Diagonal Angle here, which is um, a group of neo-fascist accelerationists, which is a lot of words uh, before coffee. Um, yeah. Basically people who want to cause trouble, uh, as well as Canada First. These are individuals who, again, very anti-Semitic uh, views, very white supremacist views. They've jumped onto this, right? And that's what the government's saying, is that, look, this is there's an extremist threat here, and that extremism is growing. Um, the minister has not named any specific group, and I strongly suspect that's because there's an ongoing criminal investigation at this time. Um, but uh, that's it. And then they, they list three other things just quickly. The first one is that there is an economic... Uh, disruption because of the bridge closures and that I think five different board, uh, ports of entry uh, were blocked at the same time. The third thing was uh, it was interrupting trade relations with the United States. And we know the Americans were upset about this. And then finally, it was hurting the domestic supply chain at home. And so that was the reasoning behind the Emergencies Act. Yeah, the Ambassador Bridge is uh, closed for any reason, for any you know minute period of time. I do consider I'll raise my head. I consider that a national emergency and it was closed for bordering on three and a half, four days. So um, uh, now a lot of, of where it goes now, um, there is some distinction to be made. I know you you spotted um, Michael Chong make his speech yesterday in the House of Commons. We played some of it earlier and I thought he made the phenomenal point that um, that the ordinary powers of uh, of of this government and at all three levels of government were utilized to, to to stop the bridge disturbance and were utilized to stop things in coots and were utilized in a lot of different facets. 
that's not what what people are now necessarily worried about in the weeks to come as this is meant to be enacted for 30 days. Yeah. And I mean, look, I thought, um, you know, Michael Chung really did rise to the occasion here. Like there's a, there's we've heard a lot of hyperbole, uh, people calling each other, you know, Nazi sympathizers and things like this. Um, and him and I would say Nate Erskine, who's also from Toronto, he's a liberal. And he's like, yeah. look, I'm not happy about this. He's, he's really not. It's a confidence vote. I don't really have a choice here. Um, but, uh, you know, both, I thought both MPs did a good job of just saying, look, there are serious issues here. And so to Chong's point, he, I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's wrong in saying that we had the right laws. The problem is, for whatever reason, the province of Ontario did not use everything at its disposal in stopping the situation in Ottawa, like licenses, like, um, uh, you know, like going after, uh, you know, these people were in serious violation of the Highway Traffic Act. By the way, Highway Traffic Act applies to pretty much every road. Like, it's not just the highways. It's all the roads. So it's like, there's lots of, of, of tools that could have been used here that simply were not used. And so when I say, was the Emergencies Act necessary? I said, no, but the government of Ontario was not using them. <laughs> they weren't using the tools. And I don't know if they just, there's this, to me, I'd like the, the issue comes down to, we seem to have been playing a really terrible game of jurisdictional hot potato. No one wanted to take responsibility for this. And this is why this lasted for three weeks. So finally, the feds are like, look, we're wearing this. We might as well take charge of it. Um, now, to the, the federal government's point, are there tools that they use that are helpful? I would say yes, in the sense of the crowdfunding campaigns and, and stopping. I mean, uh, Chong points out that Ontario stopped it. Yes, but it didn't stop all of the possible ways for those crowdfunding um, sites to get money mm-hmm. to Canada, right? So that had so they're now reg- they had now have to register with FinTrack. Um, the freezing of bank accounts is something that is is pretty serious. Again, um, it was it was allowed the federal government to work quickly. The other thing that I think and I've heard police say this is that um, when you bring in police from other jurisdiction, you have to go through a lengthy process of registering them as peace officers, right? And that, that can actually take some time to swear everybody in. And in this case, once the, the police arrived from as far away as Vancouver, as far as I'm aware, um, they were able to actually just do their jobs without having to be sworn in. And, and then the final thing actually was the, the tow trucks, right? Um, there's right. been some debate, did the Ontario legislation allow for the tow trucks to be compelled to work in this environment? We don't know. Um, some of my friends say, yes, it was captured by the legislation, but it was unclear. This might be something Ontario needs to revisit in the future. But at, those are those are the reasonings behind the invocation of the Emergencies Act. They're not like the strongest tools. I'd say we're using the, the Emergencies Act as a scalpel rather than a sledgehammer. But nevertheless, the potential for sledgehammering is still there. Stephanie Carvin is our guest. Uh, she's a national security analyst, associate professor at Carleton University in Ottawa. Um, and, and you and I had a conversation. I know I spoke to a police officer who I wanted to keep anonymous. I didn't even want to risk posting screenshots and then, you know, Xing something out. But he said, we've been told, stand down, observe. Of course, we'll jump in if there's, you know, if people are looting. Of course, we'll jump in if there's, you know, incredible acts of violence. I know there were scuffles and a lot of verbal disputes on the street. I know it was a tense atmosphere in Ottawa. You know that city 10 times better than I do, but I do know it. And um, the cops just, again, we could make the case. I think we could make the case that the the occupation had to be resolved and removed. 
But we could also ask whether police on the ground that first week had enough tools and personnel to do that. And I'd make the case that they at least could have started. I think pr protesters grew in numbers. They got emboldened. They puffed their chest out. And it's like anything to do with discipline. They didn't spot anybody stopping them. They were going everywhere they wanted to. Hot tubs, bouncy castles, all this stuff that's now, you know, uh, the, the stuff of lore. They thought if no one's stopping us, we're, you know, we're going to we're going to keep testing the waters here. And they did just that. That's why we ended up where, where we were. Yeah, I agree. And I cannot endorse that enough. I, you know, I did witness um, on February, I believe it's February 6th, it was Sunday night. The police went in um, to some of the camps at Coventry and started seizing um, fuel and supplies and stuff like that. And they just stood there and watched like they did not rebel. They did not attack the police. The police came in, they took the stuff and left. And I thought, oh, finally, the police are going to start moving in on these camps. And then they never did anything ever again. And I don't understand why that was. This was a group that did respond, for the most part, to normal police tactics, right, at first, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, you know, in the first couple of weeks, I agree with you. If this had been policed properly for in the first week, I, I wonder if we'd be having this conversation today. I really believe that. And this is why we really, I mean, the Emergencies Act requires there to be a review, of the decision of uh, taken, but that doesn't necessarily extend to the municipal or provincial level. We really do need, I think, a provincial level inquiry into the decisions that were made or not made in this case, and why the decision just to let the let let this problem sit there is is beyond mm -hmm. me. Like, why didn't we just do normal policing? Why are we at the point of having to invoke an emergency act? Like, it's just so frustrating to me and um you know i like the emergencies act is is a very serious tool like i think some of my friends and i and you know when we're talking about this and we work in national security or on national security issues we were saying this is the super bowl of national security like it doesn't get any bigger than this and it's it's dangerous and so you know and, and some of the people i see cheering it on today are not going to be happy when um, a different government comes in and uses it against a very different kind of protest, right? So, yeah, I mean, I do worry that we have slightly open pan Pandora's box. We can't slightly open Pandora's box. Once it's open, it's open. And yeah, see, I, 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 I want to, yeah. that's so interesting you say that. I want to have the confidence that this is gone in 30 days. I want to have the confidence that we're not even, you know, this is all a distant memory by May or June of, of this calendar year. But it's hard not to. And and again, living in the States, right, living there for 9-11, watching the federal government, um, Bush and Cheney enact the Patriot Act and going, OK, well, this makes sense. So, you know, this is a crisis. What if there's another 9-11? We got to make sure we got to tap phone lines. We got. And then six months in, we're like, what have we done? We've definitely compromised, compromised people's personal freedoms and liberties. There's no doubt we have. And it, it took years, a decade plus to unravel a lot of the problems that the Patriot Act created. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the good news here is that there is this kind of 30-day hard limit. I don't think you'll see the government want to extend. That being said, um, I, I'm now aware there's four different campsites surrounding the city. Um, most of them don't actually have, no, most of them don't actually have large vehicles in them. Most of them are, are camper vans and pickup trucks. But this is the hardcore. We now have far, four hardcore uh, mm -hmm. groups outside the city who are going to want to come back. And I'm pretty sure they're going to be able to wait out 30 days. So the question is, what does the government do? Well, the fact is, I don't think at this point we're going to need 
extraordinary powers in order to deal with these four camps. I think we have to just use normal policing tactics. The nice thing about the the Emergencies Act, if such a thing can be said, is that it's a far weaker tool than the War Measures Act. It's just a totally different being. Um, You know, the the Mulroney government came in in 1988, brought it in to make, to create tools that were far less severe than the War Measures Act. and, and, And that's, a good thing. The second thing here is that, um, you know, it, it is, you know, I, I think the, the Trudeau government will have a hard time getting this beyond that. But like, what are we going to do in 30 days? Yeah. Does this mean that this movement is going to get that nine million dollars that's sitting in the give, send, go? It's possible. So, you know, the government had better start thinking through, you know, you know I really think like and let me let me just say this point here. Invoking the Emergencies Act wasn't the hard decision. The hard decision is what do you do about this, right? Like, what do you do? But this movement is a thing now, right? It exists for whatever reason. There's a bunch of, you know, and we can have a big, yeah. you know, craft beer conversation about this, <sighs> about about this movement and who they are. But for whatever reason, there's a large group of people in this country who feel completely alienated. And whether or not that's true uh, or, or fair, I don't know. But that's how they feel. And so how are we going to deal with that? That's the big decision. And the Emergency Act is not going to touch that, right? Um we really need to, to rethink how we are, are doing things in this country going forward. It's, 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 we need hard thinking ahead, and I really hope that our three levels of government are going to be up to it. I'll tell you what else as well. Is, is it occurs to me that this feels like a country that um, either doesn't have free elections or didn't have one in the last five months. But we did. And so for people who are so upset when we only have 67 or 68 percent voter turnout, I get it. It was a pandemic. People are like, what's the point of this election? Well, we've just had a bunch of people in February tell us that that election really mattered to them. And, And maybe they'll get another one 12 months from now, 18 months from now. I bet you they will. But where were they in September? If they wanted this government out that badly, there wasn't there was a method and a means by which to do it. And they chose not to. But, you know, and I know there's liberals that don't want to vote for Justin Trudeau. There's conservatives that didn't want to vote for Andrew Scheer or Aaron O'Toole or won't even want to vote for Pierre Polyev. So we got a lot of politically homeless people right now. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I think there is a disillusionment. I mean, the one thing I'll say about this, this movement, right, is that, you know, I think people do want something different. I think people want something uh, not mm-hmm. the same. Right. And and. I disagree. I could not disagree more strongly with this movement. Um, I, I, I am. I am. I do have pandemic exhaustion. I'll, I'll grant them that. I'm really looking forward to a day where, you know, uh, we don't need vaccine passports and stuff like that. I don't think we're yeah. there yet, but whatever. I agree. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, what do you do with this kind of movement that is going to just kind of, um, um, you know, they, they offered something different. Right. And it, it was the most radical yeah. solution. But they said, we're going to do politics differently. I wouldn't even necessarily call it politics, but we're going to do things differently. We want a, a huge difference. And if there's a lesson I hope our political leaders take from this, it's that they need to offer they need to start thinking more outside the box. People want change. Um, and I think that probably isn't just and I'm not just talking about the people in this convoy. Yeah, I'm talking yeah. about people generally. Yeah. Hey, you're a great guest. I'm glad we finally connected on this and I love today's conversation. And uh, it's it's raw. It's emotional. It's heartfelt. It's practical. Thanks very much for making the time for me, uh, Stephanie. I always appreciate it. Oh, man. Let, thanks for having me on. Let's say good morning uh, to from the National Post. He is Brian Passifume. It's great to have you on this morning. Hey, good morning, Greg. 
And uh, great to have as well uh, his worship, uh, Mayor Patrick Brown from the city of Brampton. Mayor Brown, hope you had a good holiday weekend. I I know, by the way, you've been dealing with a ton and with a special weather statement today about the amount of rain uh, we're going to get. The city of Brampton and you, uh, I know a lot of people in Brampton have just been working overtime. Water's finally receding uh, in that Churchville Road area. But some of the images we saw last week with people evacuated from homes. Um, just, just the last thing people, uh, a were, were able to, uh, to handle, um, where's, where do things stand right now? If you can update our audience on that. Well, you're right that Greg, and, and, and thank you for bringing this up. You know, the very unusual uh, weather events over the last week, uh, caused, um, a disaster for a very historic neighborhood, uh, Churchville. And we have homes, uh, in this neighborhood that are about 150 years old, uh, and because the ice uh, broke up and then uh, got stuck on the elbow of the Credit River, we saw flooding that, that turned it into um, a lake. And we had about uh, 100 homes that were severely damaged. We had to use our, our Marine unit for, with the Peel Police to evacuate residents. We had water that was up to um, five feet deep, and that type of water can do a devastation to, to homes and, and the neighborhood. Um, the good news is no one was hurt. Um, everyone was evacuated safely. The water has now receded, but we're going to have to deal with the consequences of, of, of this damage. And, you know, we're certainly going to have unpredictable weather again today. Um, but mm-hmm. we got a great public works team. We got great for first responders that uh, have been working um, throughout the night, uh, making sure that we can uh, handle this situation to the best of our abilities. Yeah, we've seen we've seen the pictures of the dump trucks and and the ex- excavators and whatnot. And we we heard yesterday from people who listened to uh, our show in the Brampton area saying uh, that some incredible work's been done. Um, and uh, and it's been really efficient as well. And as you know, we can't plan for uh, disasters immediately when they happen, but a, a quick response that that changes everything in the minds of uh, of how people view it. Yeah, and you know what? The neighbor's been incredible supporting each other, and we've had some community organizations really step up. Uh, Kelsa Aid uh, Canada, Global Medic, uh, pitching in with sandbags and um, and uh, and flood kits, and so it is beautiful to see in a moment of adversity and extreme difficulty how a neighborhood and a community can come together. That's great. I like sharing that. All right, we'll get to. Um Boy, uh, what a remarkable four weeks in Ottawa. And Brian, let's start there with you. Um, I, I cannot believe uh, we're here. It's amazing that we're talking about some of the things we're talking about, some of the images. I think people are still processing from Friday and Saturday and Sunday when a lot of us just couldn't leave our television screens or our keyboards seeing how things were developing in Ottawa. How do you even view, how do you put any kind of a, a thesis on how it all evolved in the last four weeks in our nation's capital? Good morning. I think it's possible to really put your finger on that right now. I think this is one of those situations with the benefit of foresight. I'm sorry, enough enough foresight. I'm sorry. The benefit of being able to look back and and, Mm -hmm. the benefit of time to be able to look back and kind of rationalize it. Because I think it's impossible right now to really, you know, describe it without, you know, context. And and you're right. Things are are returning to normal. The, um, you know, the... uh, the, the downtown sort of the exclusion area is starting to shrink. Uh, Bywood Market uh, reopened. Uh, the Rideau Center is going to be opening a little later today. Uh, life is slowly getting back to normal uh, down, uh, downtown Ottawa. What happens from here? It, it really is hard to say. City Council is going to be looking at a 
motion to close off traffic to part of Wellington Street. It's kind of like how you see it in Washington, D.C., where you can mm-hmm. sort of drive up to Parliament. But uh, yeah, I, I think that the Ottawa that we knew is definitely not going to be the Ottawa that we'll know, you know, weeks or months or years from now. Mayor Brown, what, what are residents and families that you know there telling you about how it's 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 improved in the last day or two, but just what they've been through in the last three and a half weeks with the honking of the horns and the and the the diesel fumes and the trucks idling and and whatnot. People there that that you know, what what's been their experience? <laughs> well, the, well, obviously, there's a very negative reaction in 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 Ottawa in terms of you know having um, that uh, disturbance um, in their community. But I have to say, you know, the Emergency Act seems like an overreaction. You know, I, I really felt that uh, the government uh, and the and the police had the tools to handle this. And so, you know, adding in additional tools of freezing bank accounts and uh, the other additional measures that have, have been passed, it just it's a bit of a head scratcher because you look at how, you know, when the convoy was going to come to Toronto, you know, how the city of Toronto and, and Toronto police had the tools to make sure that there would be nothing lasting. And, you know, I... I still can't comprehend why these additional measures were necessary, and, and it certainly put a lot of international attention um, on on Canada with with a negative light. You know, having said that, uh, you know, of course you should never have blockades, and and you know, you, you look at how the provincial government and, and the Windsor police were able to stop what was happening on the Ambassador Bridge. You know, did we really need an emergency act? Is is the question that I don't think has been ad- adequately answered. Brian, I, I think Mayor Brown raises something that I've heard people say with, um, how would I put it, ordinary powers, they were able to clear the Ambassador Bridge. With ordinary powers, the city of Toronto was well prepared, you know, uh, two weeks ago this past Saturday. So why are the extraordinary powers needed um, to handle a dispute that, that grew and swelled for 23 days when it could have been handled with ordinary powers days earlier? And there's the $50 question right there. You know, it's a question that uh, naturally the opposition is bringing up. A lot of a lot of people in, in, in the prime minister's own party are, are bringing that question up. And like, I think the, the mere threat of, of the vote last night being a confidence vote really swayed a lot of people less towards approving the emergency powers and, you know, more towards avoiding an election. And I think that, uh, you know, that, that really muddied the water when a term, you know, in terms of using the... Uh, the, the vote last night to be sort of a gauge on how the government's doing because quite a few people both within and outside the Liberal Party just didn't see it that way. Brian Passifium from the National Post joining us. Uh, the Mayor Brampton, Patrick Brown, uh, is joining us as well on Chatterbox. We haven't talked a lot, uh, Mayor Brown, about about provincial issues and regional issues as well. Um, but it, and, and it's great. I know people say, well, that's good. We enjoy it when uh, there's you know, less discussion of, of COVID-19, but some of the COVID-19 discussion is, is that of a positive nature, hospitalizations, ICUs. I mean, you think about where we were six months ago, let alone a year ago in Peel region. Um, and you and I have talked about that so many times with the hunt for vaccines, with the need for sick days for, for essential workers and whatnot. Some of what we're seeing is trending in a very positive direction headed towards the spring. Yeah, you know, we are in a remarkably different position than we have been in, in the last two years. The hospital right now has more capacity than it did before COVID-19. And so I, I think we're very much trending in the direction that this pandemic is going to become an endemic. And, you know, we really need to adapt to that reality. You know, there's a lot of jurisdictions around the world that are lifting the remaining uh, COVID restrictions. And I think we're increasingly going to see Ontario and Canada in an environment, you know, where we have that ability. 
Um, so yeah, it is encouraging, and, and obviously you, you never know what variant could could, could come down um, the road. But I, I think right now um, the trend is uh, very very positive, and we're actually seeing each variant less severe than the previous one. And so you know, I'd say with a level of, of you know caution that, that I think we're almost at the stage where we need, we need to learn to live with COVID and get back to normal. Brian, do we get there uh, rather easily? I think there's going to be people that are that are eager, as as Mayor Brown notes, uh, and I think you know that that I am. Um, but at the same time, there's going to be people that need to be a lot more than nudged to put gas in their car again and get back to the workplace and decide to travel and and get comfortable as well with with the demographic that is by far the least susceptible to a severe outcome, and and that's and that's kids. There's not too many older people that I know. That um that that are that that are counting on kids to somehow protect them and help them you know establish their decision making, but but there are going to be some people that feel that way. Yeah, and I think what's happening in Ottawa is, is kind of a sort of a demonstration of sort of how our country's going. It was a more like a sort of a four week collective mental breakdown. I think everybody's tired of what's going on. I think everybody's tired of the pandemic. I think it's uh, you know there's a lot there's a lot of very justifiable frustration um and what mayor brown said about like i grew up in brampton and it's it's, mm-hmm. it's heartbreaking to see what uh, sort of my hometown being impacted so heavily by this so for for mayor brown to say that uh you know things are starting to look great i think that's a great barometer as, as to how you know things are going in this pandemic right now and unfortunately brampton's become the ground zero for for infections in not only gta or ontario but canada so for you know for, for officials in brampton to start saying that things are looking up i think that's a great indicator but yeah you're right i think we need to uh it's it's, it's going to take a lot longer than uh, getting over a sickness to get over this pandemic i think the the damage it's done to our society has been as long and severe and it's going to take a lot for us to get over it Mayor Brown, we had a couple of guests just yeah. just note about schools that they were they were angry that they closed um, for a couple of weeks. I think we all were really disappointed. That hit us really hard after I, I think what we'd make the case was a rather successful fall with schools. You must be hearing from constituents, neighbors, colleagues that are just, you know, relieved that they've gone so well that uh, that the last four or five weeks kids have been back in classrooms. I hear from teachers all the time saying, thank goodness we've been allowed to go back. We were ready to go back January 3rd, um, and they never want to teach virtually again. Well, you know, Greg, myself and, and yourself, you know, we're quite vocal in saying kids could be in school, and you know, we were being criticized for that uh, that position. There's people saying if kids go back to schools, the hospital's going to be overwhelmed. You know, we were proven correct because there's been no pressure on the hospital system. We haven't seen these wave of COVID cases that, that were predicted. And what we did see, though, when, when kids were not in school is that there was a huge consequence for not being able to learn. There was mental health consequences. You know, there was damage to our society. Uh, so thank goodness kids are back in, in, in school. And so, yeah, there, I think there's, there's a lot of relief that we've been able to have you know, schools function properly as they should, children learning without any uh, adverse uh, health health consequences. Ends on a positive note. Mayor Brown, Brian Pasfium, thank you very much, both of you, for your time today uh, and enjoy your Tuesday. Thanks for making the time for our audience. Anytime. I want to make this very clear. Um, the martial law circumstance, we got to be really careful about that. Again, I'm not trying to police your language here. We don't have a clue what that's like. We need to go to other countries. We need to go to uh, Soviet bloc countries, and we need to wind the clocks back about 40 years ago to understand what that would have been like. We've never lived under martial law. 
and many of the circumstances that were that people in Ottawa have lived under fear, concern, not sure if they should go out at night was not created by some kind of police state. It was created by not policing the protests properly. They've got every right to protest. Absolutely. They do. And again, don't flip this like I'm some I, I'm I'm a big fan of how the prime ministers handled this the last four weeks. I'm not. You're never going to get me to admit that. Not in a million trillion years. He did it again yesterday. We need to stop dividing. You got to look in the mirror. You're dividing people as much as anybody else's. Uh, is it Tashia? You're on uh, you're on uh, 640 Toronto on Toronto today. I hope I got your name right. I apologize yeah. if I didn't. <laughs> no problem. It's Tasia. <laughs> Tasia. Okay. Thanks for the phone call. Hi. Go ahead. Um, so I'm, I'm listening to what you're saying. Now, I, I lived in Singapore for quite a bit, and I consider Singapore a police state. And based, mm. I haven't really been following what's been going on in Ottawa, even though I, I, I do, but not to the extent of what everybody has been saying. But I have been following what's been going on over the weekend. And to say that I am now terrified of the government is an understatement. I feel very unsafe in Canada now. I'm Canadian. I've been living here for a very long time. I love this country. And I'm very emotional now because I, I don't understand what's going on. It, it's, you know, I feel an extraordinary amount of dissent um, among Canadians now. And I've always been an in-between. I don't like politics, but I don't know what to do with the parties right now. I don't know who to support. I don't feel liberal. I don't feel conservative. I just feel very unsafe. I, 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 I'm terrified that the government will come after us because, you know, I, I, I'm trembling. When I, I, I hear that. What in, in, but in, in what capacity? Like, do you feel it, like with, with what you with your speech, with your finances, with what you say, with what you everything, you know, I feel like everything that I think or say is going to be shut down. And it maybe I'm triggered because that was the way it was in Singapore. But what Justin Trudeau and what the leaders are doing now in, in many ways, and I get what was happening in Ottawa. I understand the situation. I understand that there was a fallout. There were there were things that needed to be done, but not to this extent, not to the way it's been done because mistakes were made. This was absolutely unnecessary. And this is probably what a lot of other people feel. We feel unsafe now. And I've talked to a lot of other people who don't agree, but agree that the truckers shouldn't have blockaded the area. But the Emergency Act is just to an extreme I would say I feel like, you know, we're going to be put into education camps. It's like China or Russia. I, I sincerely feel that way. It's terrifying. And you're allowed to feel that way. Now, I po I'd point out, you vote in Singapore. Singapore is a democracy, I right? I so, didn't vote in Singapore. I wasn't, I wasn't a citizen of Singapore. I lived there. But it's a democracy, right? It's a parliamentary <laughs> system, is Oh, my yeah, sure. No, it is not. <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you go against the government in Singapore, they will affect things. Like, they will take away the citizens' rights, the MPs' rights. They, they shut down um, stations, the train stations in places where you, you vote against uh, the opposition party. They exile leaders who go against the government. This is exactly what I'm seeing here right now. And there's a listen, there's a lot of problems with LGBT rights in Singapore. There's a lot of problems with human trafficking. There's a lot of problems with yeah, and it's, um, giving. It's ridiculous. I, I mean, I lived there for 20 I, over I hear years. You. And yeah. Yeah. And it was just it was ridiculous. And I, I, I hated being in Singapore. Unfortunately, I love being in Canada, but this has triggered me like very much so. And I, I say this because I felt Singapore was a police state and Canada right now feels exactly that way.
Thanks so much for listening. We're back with a live show tomorrow, 5.30 to 9 on 6.40 Toronto. You can find us there, of course, at 640toronto.com or on the Radio Player Canada app or right back here where you found this particular podcast. Thanks again for listening.